Hi everyone, welcome to The Lab Report, a podcast that will show you the inner workings of the clinical lab through discussions, interviews, and stories. Most importantly, you will see what goes on behind the scenes in the clinical lab and how it can impact you. Hello, welcome to The Lab Report. My name is Dr. Josh Raisman, and I'll be your host for today. I'm a clinical biochemist with Alberta Precision Laboratories in Edmonton, Canada. Today's episode will look behind the scenes of a toxicology laboratory that has played a major role in drug testing for the opioid epidemic. Our guests today to share their knowledge and experiences are Dr. Penny Coburn and Dr. Dylan Thomas. Dr. Penny Coburn is a clinical toxicologist at the University of Alberta Hospital and a clinical professor at the University of Alberta. She has a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences and is a fellow of the American Board of Forensic Toxicology. Dr. Colburn consults for a variety of toxicology organizations, such as the National Laboratory Certification Program. Dr. Dylan Thomas is a clinical biochemist also at the University of Alberta Hospital and clinical associate professor at the University of Alberta. He has a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences and is a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Clinical Biochemistry. He has been involved in both community and laboratory services and toxicology in Alberta for the last seven years. Welcome to the both of you. Opioid overdoses and deaths is a major epidemic in Canada and the United States, and we know it's increasing elsewhere in the world. So before we jump into laboratory testing, can you tell us what is an opiate and opioid? What are they used for? And is there a difference between prescription and illicit drugs? So thanks, Dr. Raisman, and thanks for the introduction. So I think I'll take this first question. And uh, and I think first we'll talk about opium and build on that. And opium is derived from the opium poppy, and it is considered to be the original narcotic analgesic. And uh, narcotic just refers to a variety of substances that were thought to dull the senses and relieve pain. And opium is not pure. It's not just one compound, but a whole bunch of different compounds. And so two of opium's major constituents that folks may be familiar with, familiar with, sorry, are morphine and codeine. So morphine and codeine are those naturally occurring compounds from the opium poppy, and they are referred to as the opiates. So the opiates, as I said, are those naturally occurring compounds that you would find from the opium poppy. And the opiates then are a subset of the broader class of compounds known as the opioids. So opioid is an overarching term that includes both the natural products, the opiates like codeine and morphine, plus the semi-synthetic compounds such as oxycodone, which folks may have heard about, and then the synthetic compounds also known, uh, or sorry, an example of that might be fentanyl. So the opioids by definition are simply those compounds that have agonist or partial agonist activity at the opioid receptors in the body. And that's really just scientific words and lingo that just refers to how these compounds act in the body to cause an effect. So the opioids certainly have a variety of different effects, but we're, we're going to just talk about a few of those effects. And so as I already sort of talked about, the opioids are great pain relievers, which is why they're used in medicine. But they're also known for causing euphoria, meaning they make you feel good, which is why they can also be abused. 
Um, the opioids are also classified as CNS or central nervous system depressants. And that is why there's a potential to die from the use of opioids. So if you overdose on an opioid, you basically stop breathing. And so obviously that's, uh, that's not a really a very good thing. So the difference, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, the differences between prescription and illicit drugs really comes down to quality. And so with the illicit drugs, the expected drug may or may not even be present. Even when the expected drug is present, the concentration or how much drug is in that substance will be very variable. And in addition, the illicit substance is rarely, if ever, pure, which means that they're adulterated with all kinds of different compounds that can affect the user in all kinds of ways that are unexpected. So basically, the illicit drugs are very much a potential toxic potpourri, and an, an individual is not going to know the makeup of the substance. And if you don't know the makeup of the substance, then you certainly can't know the effect the use of the substance will have. Okay, thanks, Dr. Colburn. Uh, now that we have a better understanding on what is an opioid, uh, I want to segue into the role that your laboratory plays in actually testing these drugs and where exactly these drugs are coming from. Which population um, in the hospital or in the community setting uh, would these samples be coming to your laboratory? Thank you for the interesting question. Yeah, we do receive uh, urine drug tests from emergency, family medicine, pain management, psychiatry, and uh, other departments in urgent care situations. However, I need to mention that for emergency, uh, STAT testing, which is generally defined as a test, a drug test that needs to come back within a, a short amount of time with the thought that there are decisions or urgent decisions being made on these drug tests uh, is generally not supported in Edmonton and actually hasn't been for a long time. And this is because when patients come in uh, exposed to drugs, they're typically treated based on something called a toxidrome which is a constellation of signs and symptoms that correspond to a particular family of drugs. So when patients come in and they have one of these toxidromes, um, generally in emergency medicine, physicians don't have the luxury of waiting for a drug test to come back. Uh, they need to make a decision and uh, support some of the uh, ABCs. So the airway, the breathing, the circulation, these fundamental physiological functions that are required for life. And so they're making a determination and administering a, an antidote quickly based on these toxidromes. Um, but drug testing does play a role in Alberta uh, for many of these departments in other ways, such as in determining drug adherence to make sure patients are taking their prescription, although this can also be challenging depending on the results, and in a harm reduction model. So the way drug testing has been going um, is really to try to inform the patient and create a collaborative kind of a system between the patients and the physician and such they can investigate when they have an adverse reaction to a drug that they're using or an unexpected reaction, um, an explanation. And if they see something in their drug tests that they're not expecting, this can open actually avenues uh, for conversations to uh, be enrolled in other healthcare services or community supports 
or maybe even start on opioid agonist therapy and be admitted into an opioid agonist therapy program uh, so that they can begin managing the disease of addiction. And so this is also true for psychiatry and family medicine. And we end up doing the drug tests for these applications for the Edmonton region, but also for uh, most of Northern Alberta. So we, we get quite a volume of drug tests and it's largely used for harm reduction and to inform the patients about um, the various substances they're being exposed to in the supply. Speaking about the different substances that you're measuring in the laboratory coming from these different areas, patient populations that you mentioned, can you give us a, a better idea on what specific drugs you're actually testing and how you actually interpret those levels? Is it, is it based on a, a particular number that you're looking at, or are you just looking for whether it's, it's in the body or not in the body? Please shed light on that. So we look for a variety of opioids. Uh, we look for the codeine and the morphine. We already uh, talked about those naturally occurring compounds. We also look for hydrocodone, hydromorphone. We look for oxycodone. And certainly prior to fentanyl, there was a lot of talk in the media about oxycodone. Uh, of course, we look for fentanyl. Uh, we look for uh, a carfentanyl metabolite. And just as a note, carfentanyl belongs to the same family of drugs as fentanyl, but it's considered to be much more potent. Uh, we also look for methadone, buprenorphine, and we also look for some breakdown products of those opiates that I've already listed. With respect to, uh, you know, whether we look for the presence of the drug or if we give a, a level, a concentration, uh, certainly for drug testing, we only look for the presence of the drug. Is it there or not? Uh, we don't make any effort to determine how much drug is in the urine, since the level of drug in the urine really can't tell us how much the person used. It can't tell us exactly when the person used, and it cannot tell us how the individual is being affected by the drug. So the urine level is not really useful in pain management, so, or sorry, in patient management. And so, as I said, that's why we, we really are just concentrating on trying to detect it. Is it there or not? But as I said, we don't really make a, a great effort to determine how much is in the urine. But really, what is the difference for drug testing between urine and blood? And why should a patient get one versus the other? So generally speaking, urine is the matrix of choice. So matrix is just the type of specimen that we're talking about here. And that's because it really extends out the window in which we can detect drugs. Um, these drugs get modified in the body, they get metabolized, and then they get excreted in the urine over a period of time. And so we can capture this whole time frame instead of a snapshot in blood. Blood is an interesting matrix because really the reason to uh, measure blood or drug concentration in the blood is to look at clinical effect. And this entire uh, area is called therapeutic drug monitoring. And for a drug to be measured in blood using therapeutic drug monitoring, it really should have certain properties. And one of those properties is that the amount that you find in the blood should correspond to its clinical effect. And for a lot of these drugs that we test in urine drug testing, they're managed clinically. So I think uh, many people uh, understand that opioids 
there are different amounts of tolerance to opioids amongst different individuals. So if you've been on an opioid for a very long time, uh, you may be able to take more of it without suffering an adverse reaction to the opioid than somebody that's never taken it before, or taken any opioids at all. So from that perspective, these drugs are not good candidates for therapeutic drug monitoring because there's a lot of variability between individuals. And so the dosage and how these drugs are handled is typically uh, more clinical in nature, where the concentration will be titrated up until the patient gets the desired effect. Whereas when we're looking uh, for surveillance uh, characteristics and perspectives for these drugs, Urine is the ideal choice because we can really extend out that window in which we detect things. And from a harm reduction model, that's what we're interested in, to conclusively find drugs in the urine so that we can provide these results back to the patient in open conversations about different therapeutic options at their disposal. Elaborate a little bit on the metabolites breakdown products and how that's important. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the opioids, uh, they metabolize. So when we refer to metabolism, what the body is doing is they're acting on the drug and turning it into a different chemical form. And usually this different chemical form allows it to be excreted more efficiently, usually in the urine by the kidneys. And so over time, these opioids, they will turn into these typically more water-soluble forms, and collect in the urine. And this process occurs over a larger window of time. And so when we measure the parent drug and its metabolites, we get a larger amount of time in which we can confirm the presence of this drug in the urine. So some examples of this, for example, um, are codeine. So codeine metabolizes into morphine, and then morphine can metabolize into hydromorphone. And so looking at these different drugs and uh, their presence in the urine extends out the amount of time that we can look at a or detect a codeine ingestion. Uh, there are others. So fentanyl, of course, the hot topic in the opioid epidemic metabolizes into norfentanyl. And norfentanyl uh, takes a little bit longer to form and collects in the urine over a longer time frame. And so we can detect fentanyl over a larger period of time by both looking for fentanyl, which is the original molecule, and norfentanyl, which is the molecule that the body turns fentanyl into through its metabolic processes. I want to move on and talk a little bit about the technologies used to test opioids and which ones you use in the lab. So I'll take this one. Um, generally, when we're testing for opioids um, in the urine, we can uh, use immunoassay testing or you can use more definitive techniques like mass spectrometry. Uh, mass spectrometry is a technique that really gives us a chemical fingerprint of the drug, and it is considered a gold standard in drug testing. Uh, immunoassays, although they're relatively quick and easy to perform, they can't really differentiate with certainty which opioids are present. So sometimes uh, the test can lead us to believe an opioid is present when it's not. And conversely, it can also lead us to believe an opioid is not present when in fact it is. 
And so because of all the different inherent issues associated with immunoassays, we use definitive mass spectrometry techniques, the gold standard for our drug testing at the University of Alberta Hospital. So I wanna shift gears and uh, focus on fentanyl testing because fentanyl has been in the media a lot and um, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, some of the problems that it's causing with the epidemic. Um, now, how is fentanyl different from other opioids that you would have tested before the epidemic uh, began? The main difference with fentanyl as compared to other opioids is potency. So fentanyl is very, very potent. You need a very small amount of it in an opioid naive individual to overdose. And by extension, there are other uh, fentanyls in the drug supply like carfentanil where you need even less it's even more potent than fentanyl and so measuring this becomes a challenge because we have to be able to detect very 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 small amounts and so kind of relating back to some of the previous questions uh, we measure a metabolite of carfentanil because we get slightly larger concentrations that stick around for longer in the urine. And so we're able to maximize our detection capability looking for uh, norcarfentanil instead of carfentanil itself. Uh, also, when it comes to keeping up with the increasing demand and testing volumes, um, we also have an automated liquid handling system in the lab and technology is beginning to progress to a point where we can get these robots, essentially these very fancy liquid handling systems to prepare our samples for us as we get more and more. And so we create these plates and these plates contain the process samples that then we can put onto the LCMS and streamline the entire process so that we're able to handle this increased volume. Yeah, and certainly with the with the COVID pandemic, um, staff shortages are a real problem. So finding a way to automate your whole workflow and system in the laboratory is probably going to pay off in the future. And what about keeping up with the constant changes in drug trends? Uh, how exactly do you do that um, with the the new drugs that are coming off the streets or new drugs uh, for pain management that might be coming down the pipeline? This is an extremely challenging problem. And one way you can do this actually is with some more advanced instrumentation, some more um, advanced forms of LCMS, and these are called high resolution instruments. And what you can do with these high resolution instruments is you can measure compounds, the exact mass of a drug down to four decimal places. And so the fancy thing about this is it allows you to pick out and identify an unknown compound based on its mass alone. So the more specific we can make this mass analysis, the more confident we are in identifying the molecule or the unknown that we're seeing. So by using these very powerful instruments and detecting very, very precise exact mass, we can pick out a specific drug uh, using a library of drugs uh, from a mixture. So we can detect an unknown and identify it using a library if we have the exact mass. For my last question, I want to touch on strategies that can be used to reduce overdoses and deaths. One of these strategies is called drug checking programs at safe consumption sites. What is a drug checking program 
Is it available in your laboratory? And what are hurdles to implementing it? So Dr. Raisman, drug checking is a service whereby a substance is checked prior to the individual using that substance. So the person using the substance would submit a small portion of their supply to be tested to get some idea of what drugs it contains. So it's really about giving information to the person using that particular substance. A drug checking service can also include checking drug paraphernalia, such as pipes, foil, baggies, and things like that, again, to give some indication of chemicals found in the current drug supply. However, drug checking is not a service currently provided by us here at the University of Alberta Hospital, nor is it a service currently provided at any laboratory or facility operated by Alberta Precision Laboratories. But with respect to the hurdles and challenges you asked about, if one were to implement such a service, there are certainly things that one would need to consider. And one important point that folks may not be aware of is that in order to provide a drug checking service, an exemption from Health Canada is required because you are more or less handling illicit substances and things that are quote unquote illegal. So as I said, that Health Canada exemption is a must if you're gonna be handling these samples and then testing them in the laboratory. Um, I think the other piece to consider here too is that we all know that substances uh, can be uh, fairly toxic can contain some fairly toxic chemicals. So we would need to make sure that we're protecting staff appropriately. They're using the appropriate personal protective equipment, for example, and also that we're using appropriate equipment to test these samples on. Uh, certainly these hurdles are by no means insurmountable, uh, but there are certainly challenges to implementing such a service. Uh, but there, uh, even though we don't uh, provide such a service uh, out at Alberta Precision Laboratories, there are other groups in Alberta looking at providing such a service. And certainly there are other groups in other provinces that are doing an excellent job at providing a drug checking service. And we in the laboratory appreciate the information they provide as it allows us to use that information to inform what we put in our urine drug testing panel, which makes it relevant for our patient population. So that's sort of the scoop on uh, drug checking services. Well, that was a fascinating discussion on highlighting the important role the laboratory plays in testing opioids and managing addiction. Thank you, Drs. Coburn and Thomas for your time, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. See you at the next lab report. So thank you all for listening to this episode of The Lab Report. So please let us know what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes. And you can email us any questions you have at epoc or epocc at cscc.ca. See you in the next episode.